Bibles with you today, please open with me to the book of James. <clears throat> As most of you know, we began a series on the book of James last week. We looked at the first four verses. Today we're looking at verses 5 through 8. Now the title of uh, our sermon today is The Necessities of Trials. If you'll notice in your bulletin it says part 1. So this has two parts. We'll preach this first part today, focusing on verses 5 through 8. I'll preach the second part in two weeks, focusing on verses 9 through 12. Next week, Hunter is going to be preaching it on the sanctity of human life. We're excited about that uh, next week. But this sermon uh, kind of has two parts, part one today, part two in two weeks, the necessities of trial. So this is James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. If you were able, please stand in the honor of reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Pray with me, please. Lord, as we approach your word this morning... Our prayer is that you would remove every distraction from this place that we might hear and receive your word. Lord, this is exactly what you intended to tell your people. The written word of God, it's God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, take your word. And use it in our hearts and minds today. If there's someone here who doesn't know Christ, may they see Jesus today. For the believer here who is going through a trial, Lord, help us to understand that trial through the pages of Scripture. Help us to see it and view it and live it as you would have us to see it and view it and live it. Teach us this day from your word, O oh God. And may we worship you through the preaching of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we begin today, let's start out by reviewing what we talked about last week so that we can see where we're going to today. Last week when we opened James, we looked at the first four verses and we learned that James teaches us that as Christians, we should expect trials to come in the Christian life. We recall the words of Jesus when he said, in this world you will have trouble. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And last week we reviewed the trials that many people of God went through in the Bible from Joseph in that prison back in Genesis to Paul and Silas being beaten and put in shackles and put in prison in Acts 16. We reviewed the trial that Mary and Martha went through in John 11 when their brother died. We even talked about Jesus' own trial right before he went 
to the cross. And the scriptures reminded us last week of this truth. That when Jesus came into this world, he never came to take the trouble out of life. That wasn't his purpose. Jesus came and and says to us, in a world that is filled with trouble, take heart because I've overcome this world. That's what Jesus says about trouble. And James taught us that in the midst of those, those trials, those troubles, that we could have joy. In the midst of that, why? Because we know that God is sovereign. We know that our life is in His hands, that He is a good Father. We know that God will use our trials for our good, says Romans 8, 28. And at the end, if you recall from last week, verses 3 and 4 of James 1, says that God has a purpose in our trials. He's pushing us towards something. That something is steadfastness, perseverance. And then that leads to maturity, growth in the Christian life. Well, friends, that was all last week. Today, James takes us to the next step. He continues to teach believers about going through trials, and he kind of pushes us even more for that growth in maturity in our faith in this text today because he says to us, now that we understand that we should expect trials, and we understand the purpose of our trials, now he says we need to focus on what's called the necessities of trials. That when you go through trials, there are certain necessities, things that you really need to have as you go through a specific trial. Now, when I think about necessities, I think about a story. I'll share this with you that happened to me about 15, 16 years ago. Have you ever um, gone down the Creeper Trail in South, uh, southwest Virginia? The Creeper Trail, it's a biking trail. Some of you I know have, have gone down the Creeper Trail. It's about a 17-mile downhill trail. In fact, I'm going to do it in a couple weeks with many of you here in this room. Well, I did the trail with a group from my church about 16 years ago. So we all went up and we rented bikes and we started down the trail. And a member of um, our group blew out a tire. Well, I wasn't able to help him. I didn't have any tools to help him, but my friend Neil did. Let me tell you about Neil. Neil was a Marine. Neil had been a Boy Scout. (laughs) And in Neil's bag, he immediately pulled out this tire patch kit, and he had the guy's tire patch in about five minutes, and we kept going down the hill. Well, about an hour later, we stopped to eat, and as we stopped to eat, this other man came up to me. I don't know why he came up to me, but he was not in our group. He came up to me and said, sir, my bike is broken. Do you have a bike tool? Well, inside, I said, what's a bike tool? (laughs) I didn't let him know that I didn't know what a bike tool was. I said, you know what? Just stay right here. And where did I go? I went and found Neil. Neil instantly pulled out a bike tool handed it to me. Well, I took the bike tool and I ran over here and said, here's the bike tool. I didn't take credit. I just said, here's the bike tool. And and the man's bike was fixed. And I took the tool back to Neil. And I thought, wow, Neil, man, he has all the necessities that you need to have a successful bike trip down a mountain. Me, on the other hand, man, I'm glad I have someone like Neil, right, with me. I didn't have the necessities 
But Neil did. He was prepared. In his bag, he had the tire patch kit, the bike tool. He had all the necessities. Friends, I tell you that story because in James chapter 1, James says to us that there's some necessities that we need as believers in our bag as we go through life because when we face trials, we're going to need these necessities, necessities that God gives his people, and he talks about them here in James chapter 1. Today, we're going to look at one of those necessities. It's the necessity of wisdom. In two weeks, we're going to talk about two more necessities that you need in your bag as you go down the mountain through the the bike rod of life. Those are the necessities of proper perspective and steadfastness. But today, let's zoom in and look at that first necessity, the one you got to have in your bag, the necessity of wisdom. Friends, do you remember last week when I said that James is one of the most practical books in the entire Bible? And then if you're asking the question, how do I live the Christian life? James gives you the answers. Well, look no further than this text today, because today James is answering the question, what do I need as I go through a trial? And today's answer is wisdom. You need wisdom. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you'll see an outline of the path we're going to take today as we talk about wisdom, because the Bible says to us today that if you're lacking wisdom, there are five things that we need to know. What are the five? Number one is the what question. What we should do. The second one is how. It's how we should do it. Thirdly, how we shouldn't do it. You know, a lot of times it's best to learn something by what you shouldn't do as much as what you should. Number four, we're going to talk about what we know. And number five, we're going to talk about what to expect. Friends, if you're lacking wisdom today, there are five things we need to know. Let's look at point number one, what we should do. Look at the beginning of verse five. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Friends, what should you do? You should pray. The Bible specifically teaches us in this text to ask the Lord for wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is a necessity as you go through a trial. And we all go through all sorts of trials in our life, whether it's spiritual or moral or physical. We have a need for wisdom in all of those events. And James encourages us, the very first thing he says that we should do is pray to ask the Lord for wisdom. You know, the Bible teaches us so much about wisdom. Let's review some verses through the scriptures. This is Proverbs chapter 3 in verse 15. The Bible says that wisdom is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare to her. Well, the ancient question is this. Where does one go to find wisdom? If it's more precious than jewels, certainly we want to find it. Proverbs 2 continues by saying this. 
that the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. You know, the question of where you get wisdom is so ancient that it was asked in the book of Job. Let's go back and look at the Old Testament, what Job talked about concerning wisdom. This is Job 28. He asked the same question we're asking today, but where shall wisdom be found? Where do you find it? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And then later in the chapter, God answers, God understands the way to it. And he knows its price. And in verse 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Friends, where is wisdom to be found? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You know, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, we talked about it, um, I think it was about a year and a half ago, we started that series on Proverbs. But the fear of the Lord, what is that? The fear of the Lord is is the way God asks us to approach him, to, to know him. It's having a reverent awe of God. The fear of the Lord is a reverent awe of God for who he is and what he's done. How can you and I have a reverent awe of God about who he is? Well, the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. The only way to know who God is, is through Jesus Christ. So this whole answer for wisdom starts with knowing Jesus Christ. If it starts with the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord leads you to a knowledge of God only found in Jesus Christ. So my question at the beginning of this sermon, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him by grace through faith? Is he your Savior and your Lord? Because you can't have the fear of God without Christ. You can't have wisdom without Christ. And the Bible says that once we know Jesus Christ as Lord, Proverbs 2 teaches us to make our ears attentive to wisdom, to incline our hearts to understanding, to seek it like you're seeking silver, to search for wisdom like it's a hidden treasure. And friends, I want you to know that God's wisdom is right here in the Word of God. You see, the fear of the Lord starts with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ gives to you and to me His Word. We talked about Scripture already today that God has breathed out this Word to teach us all about who He is, all about what we need to know about life. And we see the verbs here in Proverbs 2. The verbs of Proverbs 2 teach us to be attentive, to incline our heart, to seek, to search the word. And today it says to ask, right? Ask. Verse 5 of James chapter 1 says, let him ask of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 
that doesn't automatically mean that all the wisdom of the world is going to be yours immediately. The Bible says we have to ask, we have to seek, we have to search the Word of God. We have to come to the Lord and ask Him for it. In fact, in James chapter 4, the Bible teaches us that you do not have because you do not ask. Well, friends, that is the answer to the what question. What should we do? We should ask. But then let's move to our second point. How should we do it? How should we ask? Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith. Friends, this is talking about a sincerity of heart. Believing that God will provide a genuine trust, not in ourselves, but in God. I love reading John MacArthur's commentaries in preparation for sermons. As I was reading through his commentary on this section, he, he had a great illustration. He says that many times uh, believers hesitate to ask God for anything because of the way they, they feel uh, before God. He says it this way. Some people say, Lord, I can't ask you for anything because I'm undeserving. And MacArthur says, well, you're right. But that's irrelevant. So some people say, I'm not worthy of God's attention. MacArthur says, well, you're right, but that's irrelevant. And then he goes on to say this. Let's not forget that God is full of grace and love, and he has already chosen to cover your sin with the blood of his son. That Christ has justified you and you have been adopted into the family of God. Your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. You see, it's not about us earning God's favor. It's about the fact that God has given us his grace and made us his child, removed our sin because of the work of Jesus, and says to us, come, come to the throne of grace. Come and ask me because I'm your father who wants to reach down and care for your deepest, darkest needs. He wants us to see his mercy. And he teaches us here in this text to ask sincerely in faith. If you search the scriptures for sincerity of heart, one of the stories you'll find is from Matthew 8. Do you remember that story of the faith of the centurion? I love this story. It says the centurion came up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I have a servant and he's paralyzed. He's suffering, Jesus. And Jesus immediately says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion says, oh, no, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But if you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. And Christ said the word. The servant was healed. Folks, this was a request of sincerity. It was a request of trust. You know, one of the mottos of John Calvin read this way. Calvin would say, I offer my heart to you, O God. 
promptly and sincerely. The author of Hebrews says it this way, when without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We know, yes, that we're to ask, but this text teaches us how we ask with sincerity of heart. Well, that moves us to our third point, is how you shouldn't do it. You know, we've seen how you should. We've seen, um, or what we should do. We've seen how we should do it. Now let's look at how we shouldn't do it. Look at verse 6, the second part of 6. We'll read the, we'll read the beginning and also the second part of verse 6. It says, but let him ask in faith. That's how we are to ask. But then it says, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Keep going, verse 7 and 8. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything but from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we've learned how to ask with sincerity and faith, but how do we not ask? The Bible says don't ask with doubt. Doubting will show a lack of trust in God. It makes a request for wisdom, but it really is no request at all because it doubts. And what James does here in this text, and by the way, he does it throughout the whole book, is he gives us an illustration of what he's talking about. He doesn't say, don't doubt. He says, here's an example of what doubting looks like. And he does it twice in the text today. The first example is that of a wave of the sea, a wave of the sea. Did you go to the beach this, this summer, anyone? Go jump in the waves, the wave of the waves of the sea, or go to Carowinds, get in the wave pool. I hate that pool. <laughs> we go to Carowinds and my kids are like, let's go get in the wave pool. You know, I, and I can remember as a child being in a wave pool and thinking that was cool. But now it's like, man, <laughs> you know, you're sick. You know, like five minutes, you're sick, right? I mean, that's what a wave pool does. It knocks you around. Now, look, James only lived 30 kilometers from the Sea of Galilee. So he was very familiar with the sight of rolling waves. And he would watch the wind blow, and he would watch the waves move forward and back left and right, to and fro, just this, you know, getting knocked around. I'm sure you're on it, you're on a boat in the water. Everything's getting knocked around side to side. You see the crests of the waves, you see the troughs, and everything's moving up and down. Friends, this is the picture James chooses to give us of a man who doubts. He is unsettled, he is unstable, and he's restless. And he might be getting sick, getting knocked around. Friends, when we ask God for wisdom, do we ask him like we're in the middle of the wave pool? 
I'm guilty. I've done that. I've had doubt in my heart. What James is teaching us is that that doubt doesn't need to be there. It doesn't mean that whatever you ask God, he's going to do, by the way. We're to pray, not our will, but your will be done in our prayers, right? But it does teach us, if when we ask with sincerity instead of doubt, it teaches us, or it, we, it, what we show the Lord is that, Lord, we, we understand that you're sovereign, that we're in your hands, we're going to trust you with this. Here's my request, I'm laying my life down with you, and I'm going to rest in your sovereignty. I'm going to rest knowing that you know better than I do. I'm going to trust in you with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. I don't want to be like this wave of the sea. But James isn't finished. Here's a second example. He really wants to illustrate doubt. The second illustration is the double-minded man. How do you like that guy? The double-minded man. This is the man who likes the wave pool because he oscillates back and forth. He goes from belief to unbelief. He goes from trust to doubt. He goes from sincerity to fickleness. He goes, he goes to on his knees praying to God one moment and the next moment there's no thought of God at all. He's the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I would compare this man to a member of the church at Laodicea. For those of you in Revelation, have you got to Revelation 3, 15 and 16, talking about the church at Laodicea? Because Jesus talks about them, and he says, they're not hot, they're not cold, they are lukewarm. They're double-minded. They have a little bit of hot and a little bit of cold, and together that makes it lukewarm. What does Jesus say about them? I would like to spew them out of my mouth. It makes Jesus sick. Double-mindedness makes Jesus sick. What does the Bible say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Not part of your heart, not part of your mind, all of your mind. Don't be a double-minded man. Jesus says in the Gospels, in Matthew 6, 24, you can't have two masters. If you try to have two masters, you'll end up hating the one and loving the other. You'll end up being devoted to one and not the other. This whole conversation about double-mindedness, it's, it's not something new, it's ancient. If you go back to 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, it's Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember that story? When the fire fell. And you had Baal, the prophets of Baal, arguing against Elijah, the prophet of God, and they build these two altars, cover it with water, and there's some dispute amongst the prophets of, of Baal, and Elijah gets sick of it. He's sick of this double-mindedness, and here's what he says to him. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. What is he saying? 
Don't be a double-minded man oscillating between two worlds. Be decisive. Friends, it's clear that our Lord doesn't like instability, double-mindedness, and doubt. The Bible is clear on how we should pray. Friends, if you're doubting today, as many of us do, take comfort in this text that teaches us that you don't have to doubt the Lord. I love the story in Mark 9 of the father of the epileptic in Mark 9 because he acknowledged his doubt to Jesus. What did he say? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Man, is is that the prayer that we all have? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Enable me not to doubt you, Lord. Enable me to trust you with who you are and all that you do. Let's move to point number four. We've seen what to do, how to do it, how not to do it. Now let's talk about what we know. Verse 5, we'll read the whole verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and here's what we know, who gives generously to all without reproach. Who gives generously to all without reproach. One of the most beautiful pictures in the gospel is the generosity of God. The fact that God loves to give good gifts to his children abundant, abundantly. This text teaches us that God is a willing father. The best passage for that comes from Matthew. Let's read it together. This is Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Here's what Jesus says about this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Here's my favorite one. For which of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a present? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts? Good things to those who ask him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus uses something called from the lesser to the greater. If God does it to the lesser, he'll do it to the greater. In other words, if he uh, feeds the birds, he'll feed you. If he dresses the flowers, he'll dress you. He does the same thing here. If those who are evil love to give good gifts to their children, the lesser, how much more? <laughs> How much more will your heavenly father, who's this perfect father, want to give good gifts to his children? Friends, we have a good father who gives generously to his children. And this text says that he does it without reproach. Underline that in your Bible. Without reproach. What does that mean? Well, to reproach means to reprimand. Or to revile. And so many people have the idea that if I ask God for this or that for wisdom, he's going to reprimand me. He's going to revile me. Therefore, I don't ask because I live in fear of God. 
if you're here today and you're not asking God because you fear that he's going to reprimand or revile you, hear the words of Scripture today. God says he wants to give generously without reprimand or revile. And why would he do that? It all goes back to the cross. It all goes back to Jesus. See, everything here points you back to your relationship with Jesus. Because what the Bible is saying is that Jesus has already dealt with their unworthiness. He's already dealt with all those things that we've done wrong on the cross. He's covered them by his blood. He's justified us by his grace. Yes, we're unworthy. But in the midst of the unworthiness, God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, God loves you. And he desires to give generously to you without reproach. Number five, what you should expect. We've looked at what to do, how to do it, how not to do it, what we know. Let's look now at what to expect. To get the full context of this, let's reread five through seven. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed By the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. What should you expect? James says there's two situations here. One who asks with sincerity, one who doubts. Then there's two expectations. Number one, asking in faith. If you ask the Lord in faith for wisdom, expect for your prayer to be answered. Exactly how, exactly when, I don't know. We should ask, Lord, may your will be done, not ours. We submit everything to the Lord. But God is generous. God loves to fill voids. Again, it goes back to what Jesus said. If you ask the Lord for bread, is he going to give you a stone? No. If you ask him for a fish, is he going to put a snake in your hand? That's not who he is. He's a good father. But if you're on the other side, if you're a doubter, a double-minded man, one in the wave pool being tossed to and fro, verse 7 says, that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. So expect nothing, the Lord says. Rather, only expect to remain unstable, as verse 8 says says expect to keep drifting on the open sea expect to be tossed to and fro friends as we come to the end of a sermon like this as james continues to push us towards maturity um, in our hearts and our minds towards god let's recall a few things again james says expect trials to come don't be surprised when they come It is a sign of immaturity to be surprised when trials come, is what James is saying. And as you go through a trial, remember my friend Neil, who had the necessities in his bag. I had no necessities of that trip. I was totally dependent on Neil. 
But Neil had the necessities. What necessities do we need to go through trials? Number one, wisdom. Okay, so concerning wisdom, do we ask God for it? We should. We shouldn't autom- automatically expect wisdom to come. The Bible says we should ask the Lord, seek his word, incline our hearts to the things of God in his words. But not only should we ask the Lord for wisdom, we should examine how we ask. So there's the question. How are you asking the Lord for wisdom? Is it with a sincere heart like that centurion in the Gospels? Or is it like being in the wave pool? Is it like the double-minded man? Maybe it is. And we need to say, like the father of the epileptic, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Be honest with the Lord before that. You know, with, with things like that. Maybe you're not asking because you fear God is going to beat you down for what you did a long time ago. You, you have this anxiety that you're going to be re- reproached by God, reviled by God. Listen to the text. He is a father who gives without reproach because that's been handled on the cross. We'll ask it one more time. If you ask God for a piece of bread, is he going to give you a stone? If you ask him for a fish, will he hand you a serpent? Jesus says our Father loves to give good gifts to those who seek him. Pray with me, please.